Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking to John Hands. He's the author of critically acclaimed nonfiction books and novels and has been published in 12 countries. He was trained in science, specializing in chemistry at the University of London, where he had been the first undergraduate president of the union. He co-authored two research studies and published one book in the social sciences. He tutored in physics and in management studies for Britain's Open University, was a visiting lecturer at the University of North London, and then RLF fellow at the University College London, where he began more than 10 years writing Cosmo Sapiens, Human Evolution from the Origin of the Universe. He has also written three novels published in the UK and the United States, one of which has been published in six other countries. His latest book is about the future. It's called The Future of Humankind, Why We Should Be Optimistic. As you know, The Intentional Clinician is about psychology and philosophy, and I don't purely stick to clinical topics. I launched this podcast in 2017 because I'm a curious person. Thus, this podcast has a lot to do with counseling, psychology, and self-help. However, at the same time, many clients and listeners and people out there are very curious about the big questions and are honestly anxiety-ridden due to the topics that John covers in his book. Many people we hear about hear fragments and fragments of things in the news and the media and have full-blown panic attacks about artificial intelligence and natural disasters and other things like that. The hard part is that many people don't have access to the education that many of us have been privileged to have or finding time to read such books. So I do think that, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, turn to YouTube and different podcasts. So in my podcast, I like to make it a long-form podcast, which means I try to get into subjects. But honestly, with John, you're going to really need to read his book. But I do think we do a pretty good job at previewing it today. If you are a mental health professional and you are looking for a medical billing company that is ethical, has great customer service, and is very competitive with their rates, check out Therapist Billing Services, LLC. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com, and you will notice the difference because it is a billing company made by therapists for therapists. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcoming to the Intentional Clinician Podcast, we have John Hans. Thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome. Uh, excellent. So I'm so glad you've come on the podcast. And uh, we have been emailing back and forth about your new book, The Future of Humankind, Why We Should Be Optimistic. And I took a special interest in this book. And I'll talk more about this in the intro. I already kind of did. But essentially, because in my field, there are people today that are very anxious and they're coming in to therapy um, for all of the things, almost everything you've talked about in your book, people have coming into therapy for fears of AI, uh, different uh, fears or views of climate change, fears of war and bioweapons and um, all of these different things converging and um, also big arguments about science versus religion and trying to figure out all those nuances. And um, in your book, you really take a deep dive into a lot of literature, but also, as far as I understand, you talk to a lot of professors and scientists. Is that what I've gathered? Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah. 
And you share a lot of the correspondences in your book. And I do think for anyone who's interested in philosophy and science, this is a good book. But I also felt like I would love a lot of clients who are feeling very anxious about things out of their control to read uh, this book for their own, because actually it relieved some of my anxiety because I was able to understand uh, for instance, geology and anthropology and these studies about volcanoes better. I was able to understand different aspects of climate change better. And I was able to uh, understand more about artificial intelligence because you've done so much reading and corresponding about these things. And, and that's kind of what the book is sort of uh, summarizing. Um, and so I, I wanted to, you know, ask you some questions about it and kind of get what, you know, maybe get ask you what you wanted to talk about about it but um i don't know i i was feeling a lot better after reading your book uh and i don't know if i don't think you wrote it for the audience that perhaps is in the psychology world but i think it it, it seems to it seems to i i always say knowledge is power right and and with that power you you can learn about yourself in the world and i do think that in the world of short information blips and tweets and, you know, sort of like uh, the news saying something very sort of, you know, scary, it gets people's nervous systems working. And and then we start maybe jumping to conclusions about things that are happening in the world. And, um, and so in your book, you talk about extinction, uh, theories of survival, transformation of humanities, different futures, uh, the power, but also the limitations of different sciences and the bias. Um, so, uh, I'm just sort of curious, maybe I'll just start with a very general question. Um, you know, what were you, uh, when you started writing the book, what, why were you, uh, interested in these, in these things? Well, so sh- sh- should I explain how, how the book came about? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, after my wife died from cancer, I began to ask myself, what are we? Where do we come from? Why do we exist? And these are questions that we humans have been asking for at least 25,000 years. During all of that time, we've sought answers from the supernatural. Then about 3,000 years ago, we began to seek answers through philosophical reasoning and insight. Then around 150 years ago, we began to seek answers through science, through systematic preferably measurable observation experiment. Now, as a trained scientist, I wanted to find out what answers science currently gives. But I couldn't find any book that did so. And there are two reasons for this, Paul. First, the exponential increase in empirical data generated by rapid developments in technology has resulted in the branching of science into increasingly narrow, specialised fields. And I wanted to step back from the focus of one leaf and one branch and see what the whole evolutionary tree shows us, to see the big picture. Second, most science books advocate a particular theory and often present it as fact. But scientific explanations change as new data is obtained and new thinking develops. And so I decided to write the book that hadn't been written an impartial evaluation, as far as possible, of the current theories to explain how we evolve, not just from the first life on Earth, 
But where did that come from? Right back to the primordial matter and energy at the beginning of the universe, of which we ultimately consist. Now, the book Cosmos Sapiens, Human Evolution from the Origin of the Universe, took more than 10 years to research and write. The conclusions I read surprised me. The book was published in 2015 and subsequently won awards. And it brings us to the present. So I then wondered, right, where do you go from here? What's the future? So eight years later, this resulted in the sequel, The Future of Humankind, Why We Should Be Optimistic. Well, yes, thank you for sharing that very personal and poignant uh, reasoning. And yes, I, I have not read your first book, or not your first book, your first sort of science book, because you've also written oh. other books as well. But yeah, The Cosmos Sapiens, I have not read that, but uh, I'm very interested in reading about it, um, the human evolution from the origin of the universe, um, and asking these big questions, because many reasons I'm interested <clears throat> Um, but also, I do believe, you know, as a therapist, people are deeply interested and they're deeply affected by uh, to, to a couple of things you talked about, which is um, theory presented as fact, as a fixed thing instead of an evolving scientific uh, method. And also uh, what you talked about earlier, which was that, you know, for thousands of years, or what you say, three or five thousand years, I can't remember what you said, we, we have been seeking information from the supernatural, like the sky gods and, uh, you know, uh, demons and the sort of things uh, as our explanations. At least at least 25,000 years. Oh, 25,000 years. Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is not my field. So I'm asking you these questions. Yes. Yeah, so since humans had started and, and, and then we sort of came into the age of reason and, and trying to figure these things out with experimentation and science. But, um, some of the problems that are coming into the public view uh, is a lot of confusion about, you know, uh, when, when a scientist is quoted in a magazine or something like this, and he's deep siloed in his little, his branch of science, like you discussed, it, it may confuse the, the public. And so you, you go about answering as far as you can tell what the data is saying and what the scientists are saying, what the professors are saying about all these things. And, and, yeah, I just, I found it really compelling. And I'd, ne I'd never honestly <laughs> seen a book like this because you, you go about explaining things, but then you kind of bullet point what your conclusions are at the end of each um, thing. And because of the time span, you know, you talk all, a lot about evolution. You reference, you know, these huge time spans of like when when things happened to the dinosaurs and certain species died out, it happened over goodness, like thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you know, something that in, in our human lifespan, we're unlikely to ever see anything like this in certain aspects. So um, I think that's, I think it's a very unique book, obviously uh, you're getting a lot of press on it. Um, but I'm curious, what are some of the things that, I don't want to give away the book and all your conclusions, but what are some of the things that surprised you, I suppose, about, you know, f researching these things and, and, and were like surprises to you? Um, well, in a sense, I wasn't so surprised, Paul, because um, having written Cosmos Sapiens, um, this is the sequel. So I... In looking to the future, I wanted to 
to it, most scientists um as i said they they've got a theory and a lot of them become locked into that theory they've spent so many years developing it they've built a reputation on it and but science actually changes there's almost a sort of a reluctance to accept that things do move on um so i found some scientists are you know protecting what they've done but what i what i do in this book is look at the pattern of what i learned in cosmos sapiens about how you humans evolved and that pattern um i mean broadly speaking we we evolved in three stages firstly right back from the origin of the universe the primordial matter and energy then the next stage of our evolution was the evolution of life and then the third stage of our evolution which distinguished us from all other forms of life is humans who not only lived but reflected on their evolution or I mean, no other non-human species reflects on where they came from where they're going so that was the third stage um now i'm without giving away completely the ending i believe there is a fourth we will now come to a fourth stage and that will be as big a transformation that we that, that we will go through than the previous transformations and the thing that is was very clear from cosmos sapiens is that this this evolutionary process is rapidly rapidly increasing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so it took us you know so long to for life to evolve and then so then then not quite as long but a long time for reflective life reflective life to evolve and the next stage will be we're still actually governed by for a large extent by the instincts that we inherited because we didn't simply abolish our previous heritage we're still driven by the instincts of pre-reflective consciousness so we're, we're a mixture uh of, of rational reflective thinking and then instinctive thinking and at the moment you, uh instinctive thinking is a decreasing part but it's actually a greater part than the reflective consciousness so you, you've got a curve when that is d- reflective consciousness is uh, instinctive reactions which lead to things like warfare that war war and so on um are decreasing reflective consciousness which which 
is about thinking about how we can cooperate, how we can move forward. Um, it's, 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 it's particularly, um, there's it's one diagram in the book I would really ask people to look at because th that says it all. It's, um, it's the, the pattern of the figure 13.9, the patterns in the evolution of modern humans, page 216. Okay, I'm getting so instinct, there. Instinct is that produces competition, aggression, hierarchism, divergence. Reflective mm. consciousness produces cooperation, altruism, complexification, and convergence. Mm. The moment the, 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 the instincts are of a greater force than the reflective consciousness, but that is decreasing. Reflective consciousness is increasing um, and will, in the relatively near future, overtake that. And that will lead to the, the fourth stage of our evolution. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was I was reading that and I think you've now explained it to me. I was I was thinking about that as well, because uh, a big part of psychology has been transforming even in the last 20 years because what happened was a certain scientists said exactly what you said they said um, all of you people that are obsessed with logic and reason you've got to remember that under the surface we're still reacting like animals that's called system one if you go to thinking fast thinking slow it's system one it's actually not it's your automatic autonomic nervous system it reacts just like an animal and it reacts in first from uh, to threats, and it reacts in the brainstem, but also in the amygdala, in these fight, flight, freeze, and uh, other patterns that we've adapted to, such as fawn and 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 flop, and these are just nicknames. But essentially, we part of psychology's evolution has been to not only help people reflect and work on uh, a, a conscious imagination or intention of what they want to do and how that affects other converging systems. That's part of what we're doing, but it's also acknowledging the animal history we have. We call it the, in, in the joking way of psychologists, we call it the lizard brain. And if you don't acknowledge your lizard brain and how you react to threats and how you react to your environment, you are going to be confused and or frustrated or angry or something like that. And so the more you are aware of how you react in an evolutionarily uh, way from our heritage, right? The more you're able to have what I call meta-consciousness or thinking about thinking or thinking about behavior, which is kind of the reflective consciousness you're talking about. And if you're able to reflect on your behavior and your reactions, for instance, reactions versus um, basically thinking about reflecting and, and taking time versus an initial reaction. If you're able to reflect and take time on your behavior, you no longer become a slave to your behavior or just a person who reacts to whatever is there. And that brings you to another level of thinking. And I, I um, can't remember the researcher who talked about this, uh, the levels of consciousness. Now it's, it's escaping me, but it reminds me of, of that if I can remember it later, but in this figure. Yeah. And, and so you've got all of these different lines off of instinct. And then there's like the middle, which is superstition, um, animism, polytheism, monotheism, ancestor worship. There's still all that sort of stuff going on. 
Um, but in 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 the book you're talking about, we're going more towards this new stage. Is that what you're uh, of evolution? Am yeah. I reading that right? Yes. Uh, okay. We we will in the not too distant future. You know, the the the, the reflective consciousness will supersede our instincts in in terms of directing our actions and so i mean this is why i call reasons for, 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 uh, why we should be optimistic because at the moment now there the, are the, the people who feel threatened by global pandemics by climate change by even a putin initiated nuclear war and they think that the human race is facing existential crisis. So I begin by evaluating current major predictions for our future in three categories. Extinction, then survival, and then transformation by by uploading individual minds to computers or holograms. But... um, I found that none of those were realistic. Um, There's speculation starting from the current level of scientific and technological development. They have a very low, if not negligible, probability of being realized. And in those cases where previous predictions can be tested against outcomes, all have been disproven. And they make the implicit assumption that the future of the human species is determined by the future of individual humans. Um, and I am forecasting that the next stage of the evolution of humankind won't be future of individual humans. It'll be a collective consciousness, just as... The the human brain is the most complex thing in the known universe. But that brain consists of cooperating neurons and so on. That's enabled us to produce reflective consciousness. Then maybe you take it to a next stage when it's actually that consciousness itself cooperates with other consciousnesses to produce a super-consciousness in the fourth stage of our evolution. Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense, because I've read the book. And so for me, I, I, was, I was looking at you picking apart all of these predictions. And for me, I don't know if I, it's hard to summarize because people actually need to read and see that you actually looked at all of these theories and went through them. And and I think what's what happens is with a lot of them is people people are unable to remove the bias of their own anxiety uh, or their own um, preconceived notion. And so uh, for some of them, like, well, I don't want to go too far into climate change one, but some of the climate change models 
are, are sort of like these fixed models that don't also account for all these other factors. And so therefore you're saying the extinction of humans is not happening from this. Will there be problems? Will there be floods? Will there be weather events? Absolutely. But ex- full, full on extinction is, is, is not happening. And you, you illustrate that well. And also the uh, artificial intelligence chapter. Um, and I thought this was a great conclusion. You did say the more we learn about the functioning of the human brain, the more we realize how much we do not know. And as I've been reading just the neuroscience literature over the last 20 years, every time a new book comes out, it's essentially making the other books obsolete. It's kind of hilarious. And, and I, and now of course me, uh, you know, also I, I respect your work because I could see, you know, how, <laughs> how frustrating this can be, but even just in my little field, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, can we get a, can we get a, a group together to write all of the graduate schools that we graduated from that are 15, 20, 30 years behind on the neuroscience that they're teaching these graduate students? And that, you know, it takes for so long to update the curriculum because the school is now accredited in a certain way to give us our degrees, to give us our licenses. So the state, you know, uh, a state of, in the United States, the state or whatever, the county uh, allows you to practice what we do. And I'm like, this is outdated. This is insane. And and here's the crazy part. So like I'm educated about some of the newer stuff. I'm still behind. I'm what? I'm 10, five years behind whatever they're coming out with now because we haven't even figured out how to apply that. You know, so uh, there's amazing doctors and scientists all over the world learning about neuroscience. And it's just incredible the things we're learning. But it's it's so interesting because when I meet clinicians who have read textbooks in the 1970s and 80s, they're still treating people in the same way. And it's odd because the patients almost can notice something's off because they go, well, I don't, this, is, this isn't really going with my experience. And that's because of many factors, but one of which is, um, I think people are having conversations just about how, um, how their experiences are like there's, I want to go off on tangents. I am on a tangent, but I'll stop now. But, but essentially in America, there's this big movement of like, um, we used to be like a polite society. Don't talk about what you're really feeling right now. People are saying exactly how they feel, right? That's kind of a cultural movement that's happening and that's causing, you know, all these other things. And so when you try to treat somebody off the old textbook and our culture's already evolved past that textbook, um, it's 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 wild. So it, like you said, things are happening faster, which you show this sort of clock in the book about, um, you know, things are happening in our consciousness right now. We are currently evolving at a very high rate, obviously influenced by technology, the sharing information, other things. I'm not the scientist here. Um, you go into great detail um, with this. But some of these, some of these anxiety-ridden theories and models were cutting edge when they came out. And a couple of years later, a new computer or a new way of looking at it has disproven it. But the media or the news people are still stuck on that one from 5, 10, 15 years ago. So that's a lot what I was reading in this book. And it brings me to this, I mean, besides the last couple chapters, but it brings me to this level of unknowing, which I think is good because we have to be open mind if we're going to be open minded we have to be able to understand what unknowing is which is not we can't believe that if we live in this type of universe that knowledge is not always fixed right it's just 
it things are there, but think more things are revealed. I don't know if you could probably comment a lot better on that, but that's kind of what I was experiencing in my field when I read your book and was reflecting on uh, some of the things you were saying. So I don't know if you have any comments on that. No, that, 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 that's fine. No, no, that's, that's good. So um, I'm curious, you, you, I'm curious, how has, I, I saw some of your correspondences that you published with different professors and scientists, and I was laughing, not in a good way. I was sort of laughing because I was thinking, my God, this is exactly the, the human behavior is just continually there, this sort of the system one, you know, behavior, uh, so to speak, that reactive behavior, when you said, well, hey, hey I want to stick to this point. And I want to ask you about this point, and this is the point I'm asking about. And then you would get, uh, uh, you know, I think I call it ad hominem when they attack the person. They would attack you for asking the question. You said, well, why are you attacking me for asking the question? I'm just asking the question. Is this still what we think? Is this theory valid? And then, or they would change the subject on you. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the therapy room. This is like couples therapy right here. Here you are uh, sending these questions. And and I love how you revealed a little bit about your life. Like, you know, you, um, you know, especially with the climate change chapter, you are a person who recycles and tries to uh, not take jets everywhere and is conscious of their carbon footprint, so to speak, whatever. But, you know, yet you're, you're questioning some of the models uh, that are utilized to predict this sort of scary future that is supposedly happening in the next five to 10 years of this sort of extinction, near extinction event. And um, because you're interested in science, I don't think you have an agenda here, you know, and and so that's it, it's it gets politicized almost um, your questioning gets politicized. Is that I was just curious about your experience with with putting this sort of material out there. Yeah, uh, this was uh, many of the predictions published by the Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, have been challenged by reputable scientists not financed by the petrochemical industries who obviously got uh, a stake in this. And, and many have criticised the IPC's climate models. And in fact, the past predictions of the IPCC have shown a significant degree of error when compared with actual results. Um, and then the IPCC are using a single global temperature Oh, I mean, that that is, I put it politely and said that is questionable. But land, land temperatures vary considerably in different regions according to latitude, altitude, level of industrialization. I mean, some regions will benefit from an increase in temperature, others will suffer. Um, and one of the interesting things, which I think... Coming back to answering the, the, the question I, the, the, that you asked, as I, one scientist, I, because I, I always send drafts to the relevant experts of a particular chapter, you know, so, so please correct any errors in, in this and show me where I've gone wrong. And one scientist emailed me and said, um, can we speak on the phone? Um, he was in the States, and I said, 
fine, right? Um, I'll phone you. And he said, oh, thanks so much for phoning me, John. Um, your comments on the IPCC are absolutely correct. But it's now a simple binary choice. You know, you either believe that or you're a climate change denier. As, as a US government employee, I can't say this publicly. But believe me, John, many, many of my colleagues feel exactly the same way. You've actually got it right. We can't say so. Um, and that is oversimplifying it. And there's been too much of this, particularly with climate science, oversimplification. You know, th th there are huge climate is... is it's as I said. I actually I gave up my car in two thousand and four, and I've only taken one aeroplane journey in two thousand and six. Since then, in two thousand and six, that's the only one I've taken, and that's because I I want to minimise my contribution to those who will suffer from. Are putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, these will be underdeveloped countries in very low-lying areas. It won't be a human extinction, but these people will suffer. So I want to minimise my contribution to that. Um, but having said that, um, it's... The fact is that um, it's not simply putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that, 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 that's causing climate change. It's caused by a multiplicity of interacting factors. There's the orbital shape, the Earth's axis of rotation, solar flares, changes in the ocean currents, such as those in between 12,900 to 11,700 before the present, that result in a temperature drop of two degrees to six degrees and advances of glaciers over much of the northern hemisphere. So all these factors are, are in there. And people are now become fixated with the binary choice of it's it's just us pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. This is not the case. Um but it's become this question of people of, uh, like, like that, that US climate change scientist who, who wanted me to phone him. Um, he said, he said it's, it, it's pretty awful. You know, if I, if I come out with what I would say, and one, I will lose my job, two, I'll be labeled a climate change denier, which, you know, is a nonsense. These simple, binary choices. This is not what science is all about, and it's not what reality is all about. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And and I was reading that chapter, and I was very compelled because I've been, you know, deeply concerned about the climate since I was a child, just hearing what I, you know, read, whether it was in mainstream, it depended on the presidency, who was over president, if it was popular to talk about it or not. But I, you know, I read about it this whole time and I, we have seen people in the U.S. committing suicide 
because they are so afraid of the world burning up in the next 15 to 20 years, literally from that runaway theory. And I, and I think what you said, the oversimplification, I, I, this is the hard problem. This is why I got to read the whole book. But like the oversimplification is the prob- one of the main problems I'm seeing because it's not a binary. There is climate change happening. But like you said, it's a multitudinous factors that are involved. And like you also said, your book is about part that chapter was about, you know, will we become extinct? No, but you're right. There are a lot of people that will suffer in those Mm -hmm. low lying areas in those third world countries without the technology. And the, and should we do something about it? That's a whole nother question, right? Probably. Yes, we are. But, but, but at the same time, this whole like kind of fear mongering we're doomed kind of language is affecting people's mental health. And it's also dumbing down the argument into, like you said, a binary. And that is actually, this is, I don't know if I'm going too off here, but when I see in mental health, somebody feels like there's only two choices and that's all there is in life and that they've gotten this situation. I think that they're back in that system one brain, the lizard brain, that it's either life or death. It's either eaten by the bear or run into the lake. It's either, you know, uh, death by fire or I run outside. And I feel like that is not a good thing for our species to be having only the two choices and to feel like that's what they're backed into. Things are more complicated. And and if you can get into your higher brain in, in, in reflective brain, so to speak, in psychology, you will know, I mean, obviously, if there's a bear chasing you, jump into the lake. And if you're in a burning building, run out. Okay, but like in other situations, like relationships or work or politics or money, there are many, many options, right? If we can get into that reasonable part of our mind. But with something this big, I think it becomes, and when it becomes a oversimplified argument of you're either with us or you're against us, you're either this or you're a denier, what happens is, I think it really stresses people out. Either they want to literally not even acknowledge the argument or discuss it at all because it's too scary, or they become obsessed with it and it and it messes up with their mental health. And because they're average citizens, they haven't done YouTube. Watching YouTube is not research. I would like to just put that statement out there. That is not what people say. I've done my research. It's a thing in the States. It's a pet peeve of mine. People say, I've done research. I said, you have not done any research. I'm sorry. You've never researched a thing. If you can read, if you read a book on someone who has done research, summarizing the research, that's closer to doing research. That's still not doing research. That's you reviewing literature with your bachelor's degree, which is unfortunately still lackluster. But anyway, at least that's a better idea. So when I read your book, you're reviewing scientific studies, all of these things, all of these books that have been written, all these articles, and then you're asking your peers, what am I screwing up here? And and all all over the, all the sphere. So I, I, that's why I liked your book, because it made me think, this is all way more complicated. And that makes me feel so much better as a human. Now, might I be affected by climate change? Sure, I might be. And I might not be one of the lucky ones, right? But to 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 say it's this all or nothing, we're all just going to be going into a, a, a trash heap in 20 years is, uh, in a way, a um, an oversimplification. It's sort of a fear mongering. That's what it's, it feels like to me. I, I don't know if yeah. that, um, that makes sense. But that's, 
why I, I hope, I mean, I, I, I subtitle this, why we should be optimistic, because I think if, you know, if, if, if for example, a, a, any of your patients who, who are very, very anxious about this, if they read that chapter on climate change, they will have their fears removed. And it's the same with artificial intelligence. You know, people are now worried that artificial intelligence is going to take over mm-hmm. and become exceed human abilities and make humans extinct. I mean, I've read so many. I wouldn't call them scientific papers, but I've read so many papers suggesting that this may well happen. You know, they may. People, I mean, Stephen Hawking even said that artificial intelligence will take over and then we will become extinct. Again, if you read this chapter on artificial intelligence, um, you can see there's a fundamental difference between an artificially intelligent thing like like a robot or whatever or a system and human consciousness it's quite fundamentally different artificial intelligence does not have the capacity for self reflection it has to be created by humans therefore we can feed in the bias when we're producing the models it cannot of itself create and whilst it can far exceed humans in particular functions like um for example calculations yeah it's far superior but it but the what distinguishes humans is we have so many different faculties the 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 robot that can produce the mathematical equations, it, it, it cannot feel, it cannot think, it, 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 it cannot leap over a style. You know, it, it, humans are characterized by the multiplicity of faculties which no artificially intelligent entity possesses so sorry i'm very clear what i'm trying to say is that any artificial intelligence thing may far exceed a particular ability of a human but does not possess a complete range of human faculties i i love that you wrote that i i've been i i had only i think i'd seen one paper that agreed with you and a lot of them we're just saying these ridiculous things, like as if, like I think people watch too many movies, like as if this AI that's learning language and learning how to write poetry and learning how to, you know, it's amazing. Uh, the new chat TTP bot can like take, um, you know, quick, if you say, give me uh, five um, PubMed studies on uh, bl- white blood cells that conclude the following. It can quickly do that, but that's programming. 
That's it taking its programming, running it through its algorithm. And yes, can it learn? Because it's a, it's a program that learns? Absolutely. But can it then take over your computer, jump into a bodysuit and murder you? No, it doesn't have the multiplicity of faculties that we have. And could could something seem like it's gained consciousness because of its its amazing ability to utilize language? Sure. But is it? You know, that that that's a whole not I want people to read the books. So I don't want to give that all away. But I, I I also loved, I mean, it's all about the extinction. I feel like, you know, we have this fear. I can't remember. I'm going to botch this one. But humans have this fear of, you know, annihilation. And I can't remember. There's a French philosopher that talked about this, like this fear of non-existence. And, and, and in your book, the way you're optimistic is you're talking about different disasters and bad things that have happened, but will not lead to extinction of our species. And that's a key point. Definitely we'll have some casualties. For instance, you talk about the gamma rays, you talk about asteroids and comets and and this sort of thing, and the uh, geophysical threats of uh, magma being ejected and all these instances from history where that occurred. But it doesn't threaten the extinction. It definitely threatens I don't know, Naples or, or not Naples. Oh God, Pompeii, you know, that was, you know, their, their town was ravaged by this and people will die, but even going, it, it helped my brain, you know, after going through COVID, which was a scary time here in the U S but looking at the pandemic of the, of the great plague of the 14th century black death. And we believe according to the research, it killed a maximum of 20% of the human population over 60 years. and COVID was, you know, terrible, but it looks to be, according to what we, the, you, you, this was still the working copy, but it was about 6% of people that died in that couple of years uh, of the population, right? Which is still terrible, but it's not leading to extinction. HIV, um, 0.5% influenza in the, in the 18, 1918 to 1920, about 2.5%. So I think you know, while this book might not make people feel personally safe because warfare and disasters and pandemics could kill you, if you're existentially worried about the species, these things, according to what you've concluded, are not going to wipe us completely out. Like that is a fiction. Is that true? What would you say absolutely. based on what you read? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, those those belong in disaster movies, you know. But be, but it's also like I, I think that it's that concept of that humans, whatever is happening to us, part of our brain, if you're if you're not in a reflective state and you're in a fear state, and a lot of people live in a fear state because they constantly are tuning into the evening news or they're on their phone all day uh, reading the news. We're in this fear state. Whatever is happening appears bigger to you than it might actually be in the world, in the world, in the global, in the universal sense. And so I think while I want to validate human emotions in these things, I do think it's important for people to look and take the zoom out. I'm calling it a zoom out, a zoom out a larger perspective every once in a while. And I do think this book is is doing that. And that's why I really liked it. And it's quite rare in my reading. Um, so I, yeah, I guess I, I think we've covered quite a bit, but I, I, I'm curious about, um, you know, this book. When did this book come out? Just I can't remember the exact date. Um, came out in, in in February. In February. Okay, so you're still in the beginning here of of sort of talking about it, 
Um, I'm curious. I mean, I'm I'm in you know the psychology philosophy realm. I'm curious. Are you are you doing any uh, speaking engagements, or is this more like podcasts and things like that? Um, it, it's mainly um, Zoom meetings like this. Okay. Um, sometimes just with an individual like you. Other times with, with, with a team of people uh, questioning me, but that, 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 that's the norm yeah. rather, rather than individual speaking engagements now. Yes, absolutely. It is the norm. I uh, I used to do a lot of in-person interviews, and now most of them are on Zoom. And like you said, you uh, personally just haven't um, traveled long distances in quite a while, like, like you were saying. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious to hear what other people have to what other people's reactions are um, to this. But um, I guess what I would, I would wonder is right now, having written this book and this may be, you can, you can skip this one if you don't want to answer, but how has it changed you having written this book? What do you feel like you've been changed in, in your life? Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> I um I suppose it's in two phases. What I most enjoy, Paul, is actually the researching and the writing. Um I'm not very good at at, at giving interviews and uh, 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 and speaking. Um I'm 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 happiest researching and writing. So I'm um, wanting to get back to researching and writing another book. Um, so that's what I would like to do. But, but, but I, I would like to emphasize that the, 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 the reasons for optimism are, are not just the ones we've, we've discussed, but... I think what is exciting um, and what, what, what excited me about this book was the, the forecast based upon as much scientific evidence as possible, and if not, then reasonable conjecture about the next stage of our, our, of our evolution, which is... I find tremendously exciting and, 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 and positive. It's when our consciousnesses collect, cooperate with each other to create a super consciousness that escapes its biological roots and spreads throughout the universe. I, I find that enormously exciting this i hadn't anticipated that when when i when i began this book um but i found that uh, enormously exciting and stimulating um but when i completed the book yes and that part is very difficult to explain on a podcast i feel like i'm still kind of getting that into my mind based on what you had uh, written, and I feel like I actually need to read that part again. Uh, I've been like I've read, I've actually read the first part of the book twice, and I'm on the second half again um, because there's just so much that you cover 
And then you're succinct. I think obviously you've been through many drafts because it's succinct, which is uh, hard to do. Um, but I, I am very interested in that. And uh, yeah, I feel like very, I, I do. I, I actually feel optimistic and it's interesting because I do think we're in a, a strange cultural moment of uh, people feeling you know, systems don't work anymore, right? These certain narratives, like uh, I call it the grand narratives, like uh, the religion grand narratives, uh, people are, uh, you know, flocking away from those, right? Uh, but science isn't always meeting them with open arms either, right? So so where are people supposed to go for, um, where are people supposed to go for relief and for comfort? And I think it is in uh, evolving your own consciousness and going within, but also collaborating with others. And I mean, that's a really gross way of saying it and sort of oversimplifying. But like I said, like, you know, you talk about in the book, people for thousands of years were comforted and also tortured by these ideas of spiritual, uh, you know, myths and uh, different things like that. And then we have science with, but the, the way science is going, which you discuss um, in certain ways are is helpful and also hindering because they're, you know, the human bias, um, and, and other things. But I, I do think, uh, from my standpoint, I mean, your, your, your conclusions there are very interesting to me because I've been thinking about how people, you know, like, you know, self-create a, a new story. And when they collaborate with other humans, things happen that they never would have imagined. Right. And, and when you actually do the work in therapy, we call it inner work, when you actually talk to yourself, which is an actually weird thing to do, but it's one of the most simple techniques you can do is talk out loud to yourself. You'd be imagine, I mean, you'd be surprised at how much you get done if you actually just take an honest conversation with yourself. It doesn't have to be in the mirror. And people's behavior changes and their, their consciousness level changes and the way they treat people change and the way they do their work is, you know, sometimes optimized from that. and. Um, that's that's the most simple technique I can say, but it's it's uh, there's lots more to it, right? You got there's a lot more to therapy than that, but that but just doing that even can help people, which is so simple, but yet it's creating that reflective consciousness. And I don't know if you're a fan of Carl Jung, but he uh, he wrote a lot of things back in the post Victorian age in the in the and he and he and one one of his quotes I'm going to butcher, but he said something like. Most of the people you're going to meet in your life are asleep. They're just going with the flow of whatever cultural thing was happening or the reaction or their religion or their family or culture or their origin. And he said that the, the task of our next century and the next part of humans is going to be to awaken to what they've been doing and start acting consciously. Um, that's a very bad version of a Jung quote. Please forgive me, Jung societies everywhere. Um, um, anyway, but, uh, it, it kind of coincides philosophically with wh where you come, uh, to in this book. So, yeah. Great. So, yeah. Uh, anything, uh, I'm going to put your websites, uh, and all of the information about where to buy these books in, uh, the show notes. Is there anything you kind of want to, sometimes people have a little message for the listeners. Is there anything you wanted to say out there to those uh, people that might be interested in, uh, what you've got to say? Um, no, I think the only thing is is to repeat that, that I actually write better than I speak, I think. So. 
I, I, I prefer they read the book rather than, than, than listen to me because I'm not very good at public speaking. Um, but that's, that's been, it's, it's been a great privilege to, to speak with you, Paul, and I'm, um, I, I, I've, I've enjoyed this very much indeed. Well, I don't know what you're thinking, what you're thinking. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist and looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person, and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local 
therapy organizations such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week. In watery handwriting scattered in drops on my window He wrote Changes under your feet. Life is eternal, life is so brief, and life is so sweet. Sweeter than even a fox in a hole or a thorn in a brain. He wrote, Try to remain I'm a man